Amen. Good morning. How are you? Ex one excellent and bunch of silence. Awesome. All right. Glad you're here. Uh, got an extra hour of sleep. I'm hoping for a new level of energy for myself. And then uh, clearly Angela got it. So that's good. I like it. All right. Revelation 1, we're going to pick up where we left off. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the chairs in front of you. If you borrow a Bible, it is on page 1028. That'll help you get there. I would encourage you, bring a Bible, uh, bring a journal, bring a notebook, bring something. And when you are here, take those notes, listen, especially, uh, especially in Revelation where there's so many questions, so many conversations going around, so many just questions about what it means. Take those notes. These uh, probably Revelation, unlike other books, requires that kind of building layers of understanding as you move along. It will take a message one week and it will build on it for the next week. And so hopefully you guys got to hear the introduction last week. If not, it's on YouTube. It's on our website, I'm sure. So a quick recap of where we've been so far. Uh, just a few things that we said last week that I think are important. One, we are intended to hear, understand, and obey the book of Revelation. So here's what that means. The church was told, blessed are you who hear and obey it, right? So your in, the intention is to give it to you that you would understand it and that you would obey what it calls you to. And so obedience implies that you understand what's going on. So the mystery surrounding the book of Revelation, lay that aside for a minute. The intention is that you understand it. There are some keys to understanding the book of Revelation. And no, they are not the newspaper or the cable news or anything else. It's not current events. It's actually the Bible. The Old Testament gives us most of the imagery that is in the book of Revelation. So let me say this a different way. Most of the imagery that Revelation uses already exists in Scripture. It's not new. And then Jesus picks up in the Gospels and also kind of, sh kind of sheds light on those images. So between the Old Testament and the Gospels, we get 90-something percent of all the imagery used in Revelation. Understanding that is key to understanding Revelation. And then in some places, we'll even see this today, John will just explain what it means, or Jesus himself today will explain what it means. So if it doesn't already exist, isn't already given to us in the Old Testament or in the Gospels, the teachings of Jesus, then often we will just get the meaning right there in the text like we will today. One theologian was noted as saying, there's nothing new here. Right? There's nothing new in Revelation. What he's not saying is that this isn't an important book. What he's saying is this is a collection of things that already exist put together in a way to give us a message. It is taking those things kind of from cover to cover almost in Scripture and putting them together to give us a message, to give us a book. Jesus reveals that to John. So it's a book written, addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor. Most of them would be in modern-day Turkey. Um, this should be a little bit frightening because modern-day Turkey has very little Christian witness in it. So these churches, for the most part, don't exist anymore. And as we get into next week and the week after, we'll understand why. The warnings given to them 
in many cases are, if you don't heed this warning, you'll disappear completely. And we could say that probably happened. This is written from a sovereign and eternal God. Over and over and over again, the almighty, eternal God is portrayed to us because it's part of the message that we need to hear. That we, when we endure hardship, when we endure suffering, when we endure tribulation and trial and pain for the sake of the gospel, we need to understand that God is eternal and all-powerful and standing there with us. We'll see that in Jesus himself today, standing with the church. So here's a main idea for today. The Son of Man, Jesus, appears among the churches, calling them to endure the tribulation before them. Notice that tribulation is not a period of time, but suffering or hardship or trials that the church endures. So they are to endure those things so that the light of the kingdom of Christ can shine out to others. That the church enduring hard times is all about Others seeing Christ through us in how we endure. A call to patient endurance will ring out next week. That Jesus stands among the churches calling us to endure. That we would endure for the purpose of others seeing Christ in us and through us. I would say especially in the hard times. You know, I've been super critical of the church during COVID. right? That I've just said we, the church in America... We just missed our moment. We had a moment where we could have been other than the culture, different than those around us. But primarily, the church in America was caught up in all the political arguments just like everybody else. We missed our moment of being different in a season of trial, in a season of tribulation, if you will. We missed our chance to rise above the issues at hand and be a different people. Our calling is to be different. So Revelation chapter 1, right where we left off, we're going to pick up in verse 9. So it's all about, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm going to do this passage a little bit backwards. So on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is another reference, just like last week when we saw the word of God for them would have been the canonized Old Testament scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament. John and his friends, the disciples that have already given their life for their faith, were writing what you and I would have as the New Testament canon, the 27 books that exist in our New Testament. In fact, John is actually literally writing it right as we speak. As he is hearing this, he's been told to write this down. We'll see that today. So he's literally writing the last book of the New Testament. So the word of God would have been the Old Testament, and the witness of Jesus, or the testimony of Jesus, would have been the Gospels that have been captured and written down. So again, just like we said earlier, the keys to understanding Revelation keep being given to us, that the Old Testament houses all the imagery, or most of, 90% of, the imagery used in Revelation, and the Gospels. Jesus' existing canon of teaching, what we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the apostolic doctrine, what was being passed around in the first century, the Didache, if you're a Bible nerd, those things that were being passed around understood as Jesus' teachings. That's what we're saying. John is saying that because of God's word and the teaching of Jesus is why he is being persecuted. So John, as we said last week, had been, had had many attempts on his life. He'd been arrested, he'd been beaten, 
They went to kill him by boiling him in oil, and he lived. And on the other side of living, he freaked out the people that were trying to kill him, and so they just banished him to an island. They're like, don't want any more part of that, right? So when John says this, I want to read it again. I am your brother and your partner in the tribulation. Understand, John is saying this. I'm your brother in Christ, and I partner with you in the suffering or tribulation of the church. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm your brother and partner in three things, the, kingdom, the, the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I, I'm a partner with you. I'm a brother with we're family. We're in the church, the church global. But he's writing to local churches. I'm your brother, he says. And I'm your partner in the tribulation, not looking to something in the future, something they're enduring right now. Again, it would do incredible damage to this book to understand that use of the tribulation as something to come when John is living it. And when he writes it to the churches and he calls them to endure it. So he says, I'm your brother and partner with you in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he was writing to the churches who will suffer for the sake of the gospel, what he identifies as tribulation. Writing to the churches, believers, those who are a part of the kingdom, the kingdom now and the kingdom forever. The kingdom inaugurated, began, started with Jesus and the ascension, and the kingdom consummated when he finally returns. John sees everything between the ascension and the return as the church living in a broken world, enduring and suffering the corrupt world. So he says, I am your partner, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Christ, that are in Jesus. So the entire book is written to churches Suffering, living, enduring tri trial and tribulation in the world today for the sake of Christ. That how we live should shine the light of Christ to others, especially when we endure hardship. So we'll put this note on the screen. Tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. We are not, you and I, we are not promised to escape the tribulation and suffering of this world but rather we're called to endure as all faithful Christians before us have done. Some would teach you that when it gets really hard, Jesus will remove you from the suffering. John would say, what about me? What about everybody I knew who was a disciple of Jesus who gave their life for the faith, who were beheaded, who were crucified, some upside down, some backwards, some burned to death. What about them? What about the others that were stoned? What about the first martyr in the New Testament, Stephen, when he is executed for his faith right there in Jerusalem when he is stoned to death? Was it not hard for them? So there is never a promise that when things get too hard, you'll be removed from the trial. Rather, it's a call to patient endurance in the suffering. Why would Jesus take his representatives in the world out of suffering when the rest of the world needs Jesus? Rather, we would be called to remain 
endure, be the kingdom here on earth that others might see Christ through us. There's a few things we'll kind of tee up today that we'll see as we get later into like chapter 4 and beyond that we'll try and set a foundation for. One of them is this. Our calling is to endure tribulation, trial, suffering, pain for the sake of the gospel, not be removed from it. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you sat down and shared the gospel with someone who does not believe in Jesus? I don't need an answer out loud. I'm just asking you to ask yourself that. Or sat down and walked through the implications of the gospel with someone who was living counter to the gospel, antithetical to the gospel, calling them back to Christ. For a lot of us here, it's been a while. Right? For a lot of us, we haven't shared the gospel with someone who hasn't heard the gospel before. I had the privilege of doing that recently and just reminding myself of how important that is to share that gospel constantly, freely, to as many people, obviously, as the Lord would lead us to. But when our church is so absent, a focus on the gospel, a focus on sharing the gospel and calling believers to live to the gospel, when that is so absent in the modern-day church, maybe that's why we don't see suffering and trial and tribulation. Because these churches were living the gospel on the front lines of the world, advancing the kingdom, seeing the gospel take root in their areas, in areas that were hostile to the gospel. And make no mistake, we live in an area hostile to the gospel. We may not be executed for our faith, but for sure, if you say some things out loud, you will be canceled, right? Like that we believe things that are counter to our culture. That we believe that there is a way, a truth, the light, right? That Renee just read to us earlier, that Jesus is it. Say that out loud. And I don't mean on social media where everybody else says things. I mean live it. But live that out. Share the gospel with people. Call the people who profess to be Christians to live towards the gospel in Christ. And see if there isn't a little more trial that comes with it. Now, trial is not a marker that you're doing something right. I don't want you to aim for struggle. But I would say that in the absence of that, it's no wonder the church is suffering or is not suffering any differently than the world around us. Verse 9. I'm going to start it off from the beginning again. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on the count of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I just want to draw you back to just look up about seven verses. John is the one who bore witness to, verse 2, the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Again, I'm going to keep saying this. All that he saw, the visions that John sees, they reproduce images that exist both in the Old Testament and in the Gospels. Very little is brand new, and when it's brand new, and when an image is used that's new, Revelation will actually define it. We'll see that today. But even this one that we see today that is defined, you can find in the Old Testament. There's not a, a whole lot of imagery even that's new to this book. John is using common language that would have been understood. Remember last week's call. Blessed is the one who hears this and obeys it. The idea you're supposed to understand, you're not supposed to be confused by it. Ask the modern-day evangelical Christian today about the book of Revelation. Like, oh, who can understand that? Well, the intention is you're supposed to. 
and that you're supposed to live in response to it. So it tells you how to understand it. So we just need to listen to the book as it tells us how to understand what is written. All right, verse 10. And we're going to pick this verse apart a little piece at a time. Verse 10, I was in the spirit. I want to pause here. I was in the spirit is a common phrase used throughout scripture to mean an action empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Okay? In the spirit, capitalized, meaning God the Holy Spirit. Right? Let me give you an Old Testament and a New Testament example. So Ezekiel 37.1, we'll put these on the screen. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, this is Ezekiel speaking, and he brought me out in the spirit. There's the quote of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Acts 19. Now after these events, Paul res resolved in the spirit, same, same phrase, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go up to Jerusalem. So why do I make a big deal out of this? Here's what you need to hear. Nothing physical happens when the phrase in the spirit is used. John, it says, was in the spirit. We're going to hear when we add the next phrase, I was in the spirit on the Lord's name, meaning on a Sunday. We'll talk about that in just a second. I was in the spirit. So nothing physical changes about John. Something spiritual takes place. In other words, something empowered by the Holy Spirit is about to take place. And what's going to happen is he's going to receive a vision from God. Jesus is going to speak to him. It is very empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I make a big deal out of this? You would think, okay, that's pretty easy. We see it in Ezekiel, the hand of the Lord upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. Nothing physically happened to Ezekiel. He was spiritually given something that he was to understand. That's the passage most of you know, the Valley of Dry Bones, right? Very amazing, deep passage. He was given by the Holy Spirit. The next one is Acts 19. That's Paul. Paul is, doing, is, is out on his missionary journeys. He is out advancing, sharing the gospel with people. He's going from city to city as God would lead him. And the summary of that is basically God the Holy Spirit directs him around Macedonia. His intention was to go through Macedonia, right? I'm sorry, to pass through Macedonia instead of go around, right? So God the Holy Spirit leads him, guides him, empowers him to do that. Why? Again, do I make a big deal out of this? Because this language is used in Revelation four different times, this time and three more. We'll put these on the screen. Here's the next three. Revelation chapter four, verse two. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne. Some will tell you that something physically happens to John at that time where he is removed from the suffering on the earth. And we would say, one, no, he's called to endure. He has said that Jesus will say that over and over, we'll see that today, next week, and the following week. Nothing physically happens to John. And we'll see it repeated. So Revelation 17, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman. Another vision empowered by the Holy Spirit. Nothing physically changes about John. He remains right where he is on Patmos. Revelation 21.10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Again, not super important this week. When we get to Revelation 4, though, where a lot of different interpretations go left and go crazy, I want you to hear this is normal language for Scripture. This is normal for a prophet, an apostle, someone that God is using to convey a message to us to speak about the distinction between what he knows and understands and what God reveals through his Holy Spirit. And I was in the Spirit. So back to verse 10. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
The Lord's Day is a, a way of saying Sunday. The early church, you can watch this shift in the middle of Acts, stopped from meeting and worshiping God on the Sabbath, being Saturday, and they shifted to Sunday. And so their worship services began to take place on Sunday, calling it the Lord's Day. First, because that's the day of the week that Jesus was resurrected. Secondly, that's the day of the week where Pentecost came. So they made their shift to Sundays. We see them gathering for teaching in Acts 20 and the sacraments. In 1 Corinthians 16, we see them collect offerings in their worship gathering on Sundays. So the pivot is made. So John is just simply saying, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I was, something happened to me, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as I was worshiping. Maybe he's worshiping with others. Maybe he's worshiping alone. I don't know. But something empowered by God's Spirit takes place in John. So verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, now if you're following along in your Bible, it should change to like red letters here. I don't know if the few Bibles do that, so somebody have to give me a nod. All right, so if you have a red letter Bible, it'll shift. That means Jesus starts speaking. Now you know Jesus is ready to speak, right? So verse 11, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So this is the first time Jesus speaks in this book. He speaks to John. And he says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. This is the first occurrence today of the word seven. Now, we did see this once last week in reference to the Holy Spirit being present to the churches that John was about to write to. Today, we're going to see this repeated. So in this case, it's the seven churches and they're listed, right? Write what you see in a book. John, I want you to capture this. And I want you to write it down, meaning the visions that he will see. And you're to write this down, you're to send it to the seven churches. The seven churches that were in this kind of postal or courier route in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. I want you to send it to them. So this is for real life churches right then, right there, 2,000 years ago or 1,900 years ago. I would go with the 90 AD writing of this book. So roughly 1,900 years ago. So this message is for them in their real lives, in their real churches right now, today. Write this down, give it to them. So like other New Testament letters, we should understand it that way. Yes, it's written differently. Yes, it uses a ton of apocalyptic genre. In other words, image-driven revelation. Revealing things to us through images. But like another letter, the idea is that we would read it, we would understand it, and we would live in response to it, that we would obey it, right? And so, verse 12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So a second set of seven, right? And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. So when John turns to look, I want you to notice what he sees first. So he's turning to look at who's speaking to him. He wants to hear this powerful voice. Again, he uses an image, right? This powerful image of a voice. And as he turns, I want you to see what he sees first is seven golden lampstands. And then he sees one like a son of man. Now, he is looking for the voice, and yet the first thing he describes to us 
is the context for the one like the Son of Man, standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler. In verse 20, it tells us what those seven golden lampstands are. It's the seven churches that are being written to. We'll see that in just a minute, but I want you to know that now so that you understand what John is seeing. He is seeing Jesus in the midst of the churches. He is in the midst of the seven churches. And the language of using the Son of Man is common language to the churches. So we'll put this on the screen, Matthew 17. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The number one name that Jesus used for himself while he was on earth for three years doing vocational ministry, training disciples and sending people out, was calling himself the Son of Man. Now that relates to Daniel chapter 7, we'll see that in just a minute, where I saw one like a son of man. That was Jesus' number one reference for himself, was that he was the son of man. So here's a note for you, where Jesus is, context. Jesus is seen as standing among the seven churches, speaking to the seven churches. Jesus being with the churches is key to his message to the churches, his being in the presence, midst of, middle of, the churches, is key to understanding his message that he's giving to the churches. He is with them. That's part of his message. He begins to speak to John, and oddly enough, for whatever reason, he doesn't start out in front of John, right? He's somewhere behind him. And it says, as John turns to look for the voice, what he sees first is the seven golden lampstands. Context matters. Where Jesus is matters to his message. Where Jesus is today matters to us. Who Jesus is today matters to us. His context of being in the midst of the churches matters to his message. Verse 13, so here's John's description of the Son of Man. Now, most people would set up camp on the description of Jesus here. We won't today, and, and the very simple reason all the descriptors about Jesus are used over the next two weeks, so we'll just catch them there. Make sense? So all these things are repeated in the next two chapters. But let's read through them. So one like a son of man. Verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, another seven. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So again, we'll talk about this description more, kind of break down some of the imagery behind it, because it's all consistent with the Old Testament. From Exodus on forward, from the priestly garments on forward to some of the prophetic things. Here's one of them, Daniel chapter seven, verse nine and 10, it says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, the throne was fiery, fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. Now, not exactly the same, but you can see the hair white like wool, all those things, right? Now, here's what's interesting about this. These are descriptors made about the ancient of days, which is not Jesus, it is God. He sees God seated on the throne, and that's what he describes later on, just a few verses later. He says, and then I saw one like the Son of Man, not the same description. 
what John is doing here is tying Jesus into being God, right? He's using some of the same descriptions that Daniel uses to describe God, but he's combining these two things. He is the son of man who comes and stands before the ancient of days. We read this passage last week, and the ancient of days, God gives the son of man, Jesus, a kingdom without end. That's in Daniel 7, that God grants him a kingdom that will have no end, that all people, tongue, tribe, nations will be a part of this kingdom. Remember what John just said he is. He is our brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. This kingdom that has been given to Jesus that was began or inaugurated by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that will be completed or consummated at his final return, that kingdom that if you're in Christ, you're a part of today, that's the kingdom that God gives to Jesus. John takes that imagery and reminds us, don't forget that Jesus is not just man, but he is God. And he uses the imagery that can only be about God to describe Jesus as Jesus stands in the midst of the churches. So let's start back at verse 16. So in his, meaning Jesus, in Jesus' right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, no one thinks Jesus has a literal sword coming out of his mouth. But it is one of the most pronounced images in the scriptures, especially in this case, in the New Testament. That the word of God is like a two-edged sword, right? It not only, not only defends you, but also will critique you. Right? That it goes both ways. It fights the world against you, but it also fights sin in you. So this image of the sword is the word of God. This, and that's all throughout scripture we see that. We also see, see Jesus identified as the word of God. In Genesis 1, in John 1. Like over and over this consistent imagery. But you don't have to read Revelation and take this as literal. He doesn't have a sword coming out of his mouth. He is the word of God. So when he speaks, it is the word of God. So the imagery here is supposed to convey a meaning, the meaning we're supposed to understand. And if we don't understand it, we can find it in Scripture. It's not hard, right, that we can understand it because we've been given all the imagery before. So here is Jesus standing, and now this next seven. So he is writing to seven churches. He's standing amongst the seven golden lampstands. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. So this Jesus who is present among the churches, and we're starting to see this repetition build up. This seven, repeated, seven, repeated, seven, repeated. We see this over and over again. For those of you that are in community groups, when we're doing our community group study, inductive Bible study, the first thing we're looking for is keywords or phrases. Repetition is one easy way that we see something that is the passage is aiming at. If you're not in a community group, see one of us afterwards. We would love to plug you in. Well, you can take time and learn how to grow in your understanding of Scripture and how to study the Bible. Have a place where not only you hear a message, because that's not what community groups are for, but you discover a message and talk about how it applies to your life. So please see me. So we see this repetition, and then it describes Jesus having a face like the sun shining in full strength. Just as clear and as clean as I could give this one to you, here it is in John chapter 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
really easy to understand, okay, why this crazy imagery? Well, because it's all saying something about this. So the Son of Man is tying us to this vision that has taken place for over a thousand years, reminding us that Jesus is not just human, but also God, that he also was in the presence of God, that he is the eternal creator, that he is the one who rules the kingdom, that he is the king above all kings, that his word is the very word of God that cuts and divides both ways. It will defend you from others and from error and from false doctrine, but it will also reveal to you sin inside, the things inside you that are contrary to God. That his face is like this blazing fire. And the idea here is Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. We get all the way to the end of Revelation. It'll talk about the kingdom and it'll talk about that it has no need for sun or moon or stars. Because the presence of Jesus lights the kingdom. And again, we don't have to take either one of those literally like no sun or like Jesus is glowing. But the idea is that it's to convey meaning to us. I am the light of the world. Where Christ is, there is no darkness. When Christ shines and when he empowers us, we should shine through him. So back to these sevens. So we see these repet this repetition of sevens, right? So the seven churches that are being written to, and the voice comes. John turns to see the voice, who is Jesus, but before he gets there, he sees seven lampstands. What do lampstands do? Well, they shine light. And then he describes Jesus. And how does he describe Jesus? Well, lots of imagery, but also holding in his right hand seven stars. So we see this repetition and the use of light, this imagery of both, uh, of both light shining light, stars shine light, right? Or Jesus gives light, or the lampstands, the churches give light. So again, we see this consistent imagery. Verse 17, so when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Remember last week, I said that Revelation preaches the death and resurrection of Jesus a lot, repeatedly, over and over the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was key, it was central to understanding in the first century church that Jesus who lived died and Jesus who died rose again eternally to life. That Jesus is alive today was the key thing about the gospel that was emphasized in the first century. If you were around about a year ago, we were studying through Acts on Sunday nights and we'd gather up often on the patio and have a meal and one night, we just spent some time one night going through all the gospel proclamations in the first several chapters. And they all emphasize that Jesus is alive today. Modern day church gospel often emphasizes death for forgiveness of sin and heaven. And we wonder why we miss the power of the gospel for today. The Bible emphasizes that Jesus is alive. So here's what Jesus says. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last, or the Alpha and the Omega, which has been assigned to God at the end of last week. I am the first and the last. The living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forever. I have the keys of death and Hades. Here's Jesus' message. 
right? That God created you, loves you, but you have sinned and fallen away from God. That you've all been separated from God because of your sin. Because you've inherited sin, you were born separate from God, and then you added to it. You are separate from God. And there's nothing you can do, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing collectively we can do to be good enough to restore our relationship to God. Because God is a holy God, an other God, a God who is not around sin. And we are a sinful and broken people. And we would do ourselves really good work if we would understand how deeply depraved and sinful and broken we are as human beings. The modern day Christian in America thinks that we're primarily good people, that you just kind of sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on, all good. That's not true. We are desperately evil. We are desperately wicked and self-centered. And that we could never find our way to a holy and just God. So Jesus enters into humanity. God becomes human, becomes flesh. And he lives the life that you and I were called to live perfectly. With every decision always bringing glory to God. Out of love for God the Father and love for you and I, sinful humanity. And then Jesus, perfect human and perfect God, gives his life for us, willingly dies on a cross, gives himself over to one of the most uh, brutal and, and painful ways of dying known in human history. As I often say, literally, the word excruciating is excrucis, from the cross. That's what that means. That he gives himself to a violent and brutal death to cover our sin. That he is laid in a grave to know, so that we would know he has died and forgiven our sin but three days later resurrects from the grave to new life, to life eternal. That if you will place your life in Jesus' hands, that if you will give Jesus your all, that if you will follow Jesus as the number one thing in your life, that he will shape your life, your sins can be forgiven. The call is clear. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. We had baptisms just a couple weeks ago. We have another one next week. Yeah. That's a good thing. That's people identifying themselves as wanting to follow Jesus as their primary thing. Right? Not just a plus one, but Jesus. Here's how Jesus describes himself. He says, I am the first and the last, the living when I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Here's what 1 Corinthians says in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. So Paul says, if Jesus is still in the grave, I'm wasting my time. He was, I am, you are. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There is no new life apart from a living Jesus today. And the early church understood that. That's what they preached. Not just the forgiveness of sin and trying to market salvation to you so you'll buy into it for heaven. But that there is a living Jesus who has overcome Satan's sin and death. And that if your life is in Christ, you are forgiven. You are resurrected. You have been given spiritual life. Verse 19. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Write the things that are and those that are to take place after this. When he says those that are to take place after this, he kind of mirrors that soon from the early part of Revelation 1. 
like what must soon take place, he says early in chapter 1. Like write what is true now and what is going to happen so the churches have it, so they know how to handle it when it happens. You don't have to read that and go, oh, he means thousands of years in advance. No, he's writing to the churches with a call to endure. So he's going to explain what is coming. It was relevant to them. We know that because he says, listen, blessed are you if you hear and you obey. So you must be able to understand it. It'll happen in your lifetime, and your call is to obey. Your job is to live out what you learn in this when it takes place. Verse 20, Jesus continues. He says, as for the mystery, here it is. Here's the sevens. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, the word angelos in Greek means one of two things, angel or messenger. Angels exist as messengers. When they enter into human space, like Christmas is coming, right? We're going to see an angel tell Mary, hey, by the way, you're pregnant, Right? I think he says it a little nicer than that, but you get the point, right? He delivers a message. Here's what God is going to do in you. So angels are messengers inherently. It doesn't always mean a spiritual being that is a messenger. If you sent a messenger 2,000 years ago, you sent an agalos. In this case, it is likely a spiritual being that is in some way in relationship to or between the church and Jesus. Like that there is care being given to this church. You don't have to make it more than it says. says. You also don't want to make it less. So it doesn't have to be this weird thing. It's just this messenger of the church, that, that Jesus is caring for the churches, that he holds the messengers to those churches, the angels, as it were. He holds them in his right hand. He carries the message to the churches. He cares for it. He keeps it safe. He guards it. He gives it. And then he makes sure it's delivered correctly. Jesus holds that authority and that power over the message to the churches. Remember, seven real churches, seven local congregations, local bodies like this, seven of them. Jesus standing among them in relationship to the churches with individual kind of care for. He doesn't call anybody to be a corporate, collective, universal kind of part of a thing that exists in past and the present and the future. He calls us to be a part of a local church. He says, I stand in the middle of the local churches, caring for them independently. He's going to speak to each one of those seven separately starting next Sunday. He's going to deliver little introductions to each one of them because they all have different circumstances. But the answer to all those circumstances is found in Jesus. The answer to our problems, our struggles, our journey in life is Jesus. It is found in Jesus. And we find that through a local church. We gather together with one another here. All the way back where Jesus gives his final word to the early church. And he does it in the context of standing in the middle of seven real churches. We've got to understand the power and, and the, the body life, if you will, of a local church. Not tr churches, local churches don't get it all right. We're going to see that in his introduction to those seven churches. 
but he still speaks through the church, to the church, to the people in the church, not to random people, but to the churches. Just like all the letters in the New Testament written to the church in Rome, to the churches in Galatia, to the church in Ephesus, even to the pastor of 1 Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus, or Titus, who's pastoring in Crete, or the churches. That the local church is the plan. Even though we're flawed and broken, get stuff wrong, we are the way to live this faith out. So Jesus says, I control the message, and I stand in the middle of the churches. These seven lampstands are real churches, and these messengers, this message contains that Jesus says he protects, he guides, he keeps. So this is John's first vision, that Jesus is among the churches, that he is speaking to the churches that John will deliver this message to. So what are we to take from it? Matthew 5 says this, you, speaking to you, disciples, anyone who is in Christ, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. Notice you put a lamp on a lampstand, right? Just like Revelation, on a lampstand. Where do you put the lamp? Up on the lampstand. Oh, I get it. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So even before Jesus ascended, he gave the same message, a reminder, listen, you are the light of the world. You, Generations Church, you're here today, and you're in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, you live in repentance, that Jesus is the big E on the I chart of your life, that's you. You are the light of the world. You don't hide that. You don't put something over it. You put that up on a lampstand so the world can see that Jesus wants to be that light that shines through you to a dark and empty and broken world. That's our calling, that we would be that light, that we would shine brightly, that you take your light, and where do you put it up on a lampstand? That Jesus says is the church, like the church is the place where light should shine from. The local church, not a bunch of independent people, but when we gather together, we are the church that we should shine to the world around us. That it should be less dark in the city of Cerritos because generations exists. I'll say that again. The city of Cerritos should be less dark, less broken, less sinful because we exist in the city. Not because we're any good, but because we have Christ's light in us. That we should shine forward when the next trial, tribulation, suffering, pandemic, you name it, whatever happens, we should be different. We should be a beacon of light. We should not be so politicized that we look like the rest of the world. We should be so gospel-saturated that we shine in a dark world. So the calling is to remember Jesus is among us, the church. That he stands and speaks to the local churches. That he takes that message to the church and he holds it in his right hand. He guards it. That we might take the light that we are collectively and shine into a dark and broken world. I want to read that verse again. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the angels, the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We apply that to us today as we should be that shining lampstand. So what do we do with this? I'm going to put this closing note on the screen. Shining the light of Christ to others, the local church is the place 
where we collectively shine the light of Christ into the world. We are to place our collective light on a stand to make Jesus known. We are to gather together to build one another up, to worship together, to pray together, to study God's word together, to meet in small group communities together, to serve one another, to give together, to serve so that our light would shine in our community, that we would make Christ known in our community. It's not for our glory, it's for Christ's glory, that we would shine this light into a city who needs Jesus desperately, just like we all once needed Jesus desperately. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. You are the light of the world, a title that was used for God throughout the Old Testament. You claim you are the light of the world. And then in Christ, you have called us to be lights to the world that we gather together as a body, Christ's body, you call the church Christ's body, your body, that we gather together and then we bring our light, we set it up on a stand so the world can see. That was the calling to Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, to the church in Thyatira, that they would be a light to their communities. Help us to be a healthier church because we understand you're here and you're alive and you speak. And you call us to join together as a body. And you call us to shine your light into our community. So Jesus, draw us in through your word. May we see ourselves through the lens of your scriptures. May we call one another in this room and beyond to patient endurance because we are a part of your kingdoms here still on earth and we will endure hardship, suffering, trial, tribulation. We are called to endure it so that your light can shine still. Lord, I definitely don't want to see another pandemic or another struggle nationally or globally. But I pray that if we do, that the church is in a better place than it was. I pray that our church would be in a better place that we could be a brighter light to the world around us. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.